All right. So if you're familiar with First Samuel, if you studied it, if you read it, um, you may have noticed that the primary focus of chapters 4 through 6 is basically about the Ark of God. And if you haven't read it, if you haven't studied it, um, that's okay. I'm just giving you a heads up that that's what those three chapters are about. Four through six is about the Ark of God. Now, when we covered chapter four last week, we saw the events that led to its capture. This week, as we cover chapters five and six, we're going to see what occurred when, when the Philistines were in possession of it and how the ark was returned back to the Israelites. Now, when we get to chapter 7, the focus will shift back to Samuel and the revival that took place about 20 years after the ark's return. And there, in those three chapters, uh, these are some of the things that, well, these are the main things I think that we'll see that's what, what it'll show us. First of all, nothing ever will ever compare at all to the overwhelming power of God. Number two, it's dangerous to undermine the overwhelming power of God. And thirdly, you can see that this, this, uh, these chapter, this chapter here, chapter 7, will show us that when God moves, nothing at all will be able to contain the overwhelming power of God. And so before we get into 1 Samuel chapter 5, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to minister to us this morning. Lord God, thank you for that just amazing time of worship that we were able to have together, Lord. So now as we continue this time of worshiping you, worshiping you through listening of the word and hearing the word, and that you will also... Um, Clear our minds, clear our hearts, so that we may focus completely on what you have to say, Lord. We ask that you move powerfully, not just here in this room, in this church, Lord, but also move powerfully to those that are watching this live and or those that may be watching it later on, Lord, or hearing it. We love you, Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 5. And the word of God says, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early in the next early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why still today, the priest of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod, 
He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our, and our God Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the ark of God to Ekron. But when they got there, the Ekronites cried out, they moved the ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together. They said, send the ark of Israel, of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so that it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So in this, again, short chapter, 12 verses, we're given details about the events that occurred after the Ark of God had been captured by the Philistines and what happened in those three cities that it was held at. Uh, the first location that we're told about was in the city of Ashdod, where they brought the, where they brought the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it next to his statue as a symbol of the Lord's defeat. Now, Dagon was a national god of the Philistines, and supposedly they believed that uh, Dagon was the father of Baal. So placing the Ark of God next to the statue of Dagon, what that did is it represented not only the defeat of Israel, but that the Lord was, our Lord, our God, was less superior and now Dagon's prisoner. But by doing so, they misjudged the peculiar character of Yahweh. They didn't understand that a God like Dagon, who is just a carved image into a block of wood and stone, had no real power and was certainly no match for Yahweh. The God of the Ark was more powerful than Dagon, and he was bigger than the precious symbol that, they, that, they, that the Philistines had stolen. And when the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, they found that Dagon's statue had fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord. Not necessarily perceiving the significance. They didn't get it right away. They didn't understand what this meant. They maybe thought it was just an accident. They once again set Dagon up uh, next to the ark. But by the next morning, the same thing had happened. 
However, this time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Now, don't you think that if Dagon was a real god, if he was an actual god, that he would have at least tried to defend himself? Well, yeah, of course, but he wasn't. But so by doing this, God was telling them, was telling the Philistines in a clear and obvious way that there is no other God besides him. But instead of accepting this truth, they created some silly rule that no one was ever allowed to walk on the threshold. On the threshold. Now, this wasn't the only time that Dagon didn't fare well against the God of Israel. Back in Judges chapter 16, Samson destroyed his temple in Gaza. In that story, God gave him the strength to pull the entire building down on all the leaders of the Philistines. Well, here now, by maiming Dagon, by maiming Dagon's image, God was demonstrating two things. By breaking off Dagon's head, he showed that there is no wisdom in idols. And by breaking off his hands, he demonstrated that idols have no power. Well, it seems that the Philistine God wasn't the only one affected. The Philistine people who lived in Ashdod were affected as well. It says in verse 6 that the Lord terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. Now in the Greek and Latin versions, this verse states that this plague, which was evidently carried by mice, caused large tumors to erupt on their bodies. Now, the nature of the tumors were unclear, but it seems to have specifically affected the rectal area, as the Hebrew word opal indicates. So, again, many scholars are, you know, have, have suggested that perhaps it was a hemorrhoid-like condition. But regardless, though, when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they were terrified, they were freaking out, and they realized they, 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 something had to be done. They knew that something had to be done. So they came to a consensus that the cause of the outbreak of disease was really due to them being in possession of the Ark of God, of the Ark of God of Israel. Of the, of Israel. Finally got it. Finally clicked. So they called the Philistine rulers together and asked, what should we do with the Ark of Israel's God? They then decided it should be moved to the city of Gath. And upon arriving at this second Philistine city, verse 9 says that the Lord was against the city of Gath. And the result was that they too were afflicted with an outbreak of tumors. It was then decided that the ark be moved to a third city, the city of Ekron. 
But as soon as it got there, the decimated population wanted no more to do with the ark. So they pleaded, they begged with the Philistine rulers that the ark be just send it back, send it back to Israel so that it wouldn't kill any more of its people. Notice also in verse 12 that at the end of verse 12 that we're told that the outcry of the city went up to heaven. This indicates that their desperation for relief had become so intense the Philistines actually prayed to a God greater than their local deities, greater than Dagon. And honestly, I have no doubt that if they had repented and turned towards the Lord, they actually could have benefited from the ark. But instead, as we just saw, it became a curse and a judgment to them. Well, the same is true among, the same is true of the presence of God among men today, among the people today. You see, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it can be a fragrance of life to some and the aroma of death to others. And so, now again, in this short chapter, the Philistines had now learned a hard lesson, which the Israelites had learned in the previous chapter, that no one can manipulate or control Yahweh simply by obtaining possession of the Ark of the Covenant. See, God is sovereign and he's free. And though he permitted his presence to be in between the cherubim at the top of the ark, the, his entire personhood couldn't be reduced to just that location alone. In fact, Yahweh is simply bigger than the Israelites or the Israelite or, or Philistine had understood him to be. So even though their views on God were distinctly different, we now see that both nations had grossly underestimated his power and holiness. And we must be careful too as his people to not underestimate his power because he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants it. You know, he can. If he wanted to, he can call down, or he can call down lightning and and strike us just for, you know, uh, using his name in vain. You know, we need to understand that he is an all, he's all powerful. He's everywhere all the time. He's omniscient, omnipresent. You know, and, and again, we need to make sure that that's clear in our minds that we have a reverent attitude when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to not just our worship, our view of him, but also our view of his word. His word is living and active. It's powerful. And when it comes to other gods, nothing at all 
will ever compare. Jesus, when it comes to, you know, I know other religions believe that he is a prophet, but we need to understand that he's more than just a prophet. He is greater than just a prophet. He is the second person of the Trinity. He was there in the beginning, and he will be there in the end, and he will be there for all of eternity. And so when someone says, yeah, you know what, all religions are the same, and you know, all these, pro- all these prophets are teach the same thing. No. In all reality, they're not. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the only one who ever rose from the dead. Amen. Jesus is the only one that's sitting right now at the right hand of God, interceding for each and every single one of us. No other prophet, no other person at all can claim that. So I'm going to move on now. I'm going to move on uh, to chapter 6. And the narrative or story of the ark, um, which began in chapter 4 uh, with its capture. And here again, we just saw in chapter 5 uh, what happened when the Philistines had captured it. Well, here now in chapter 6, we're going to read about how the ark of God was returned to Israel. So let's go again to chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, What should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. They replied, If you send the ark of Israel's God away, do not send it without an offering send back a guilt offering to him and you will be healed then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed they asked what guilt offering should we send back to them and they answered five gold tumors and five gold mice corresponding with the number of philistine rulers since there was one plague for both of you and your rulers Make images of your tumors and your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs when he, when he afflicted them? Didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? Now then, prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take away their calves, or take their calves away, and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the ark, and put it and put the gold objects that you're sending him as a guilt offering in the box besides the ark. Send it off and let it go its way. Then watch if it then watch. If it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh. It is the Lord who had made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. The men did this. They took the two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and confined their calves uh, in the pen. They then put the ark on the Lord on the cart, allowing... um, along with the box containing the gold mice and the images of the tumors. 
The cows went straight up the road to Beth Shemesh. They stayed on that one highway, lowing as they went. They never strayed to the right or to the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them to the territory of Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting the wheat um, in the valley when they, when they looked up and saw the ark. They were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped off the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. When the five Philist, when the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day. As a guilt offering to the Lord, the Philistines had sent back one gold tumor for each city, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The number of gold mice was corresponding to the number of Philistine leader, the Philistine cities of the five rulers, the fortified cities, and the outlying villages. The large rock in which the Ark of the Lord was placed is still in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh today. God struck down the people of Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord had struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go uh, from here? They sent messengers to the residents of Kirith Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. And in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, So the people of kirith Jerim came for the Ark of the Lord and, and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son, Eleazar, to take care of it. As we just read this chapter primarily deals with the preparations made to return the Ark of God back to Israel and also what happened after they had delivered it, when they delivered it, and after they delivered it. It says in, that after seven months of the Ark being in Philistine hands, and we have to remember there now there had been suffering for seven months with these tumors, possibly hemorrhoid-like tumors, they had finally reached their limit as to the amount of humiliation and suffering they could endure. See, not only was their god, Dagon, missing his hands and head, but a large portion of their population were dealing with the painful and fatal consequences of God's plague. So they consulted with their priests and diviners in order to come up with a proper way to return the ark of uh, return the ark back to Israel without further judgment. These priests and diviners suggested returning the ark with a guilt offering of five gold tumors, which represented the physical affliction itself. 
and five gold mice that represented the mice ravishing the cities and that were possibly the sources of the tumors. The priests further reminded them of Egypt's fate at the hands of Yahweh. They knew the story. They had heard it. And they urged them. They urged the, the Philistines are not to harden their hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh had hardened theirs. Instead, they should make every effort to just let the ark go and leave it alone. To make sure that things which happened to them came from God or not, the Philistine priests came up with a plan that would ultimately determine for them the source. They were told to prepare one cart and two milk cows that had never been yoked. They then were to place the Ark of the Lord on the cart and put the gold objects in a box besides the Ark. So the idea was this. Since the cows were not used or used to pulling a cart, they had never been yoked and had baby calves depended on them, all their instincts would be to try to take off that yoke and go back to their baby calves to turn around and and you know to where they were familiar and comfortable with if they did that they know they know that god's hand wasn't punishing them and it was just something that was happening to them by chance on the on the other hand if they pressed ahead if they kept going with their precious load, that would be proof enough that the Lord had been responsible for their afflictions. Well, sure enough, contrary to, the, to nature, the cows never made an attempt to return, to return to their calves and just went up straight up the road to Beth Shemesh. And so now it became abundantly clear to the Philistine rulers walking behind the cart that the Lord had been the root of all their troubles. Imagine being one of those Philistine rulers, seeing this, these cows not even deviate to the left or the right. I think any if they would have attempted to, to turn, if they would have maybe stopped and gotten some grass, if they would have you know, just move just a little bit, that would have been proof enough for them that this their disease was happening by chance. It wasn't this wasn't the God of Israel. And how many times again do we do the same thing? We you know instead of forging ahead in what God's calling is for us, what he has for us, you know, it, we see it, we understand it, we get it, he's spoken clearly to us and we often look for signs or things that will keep us away from that, will keep us from that. And then we say, oh, well, I guess it's the Lord's will. You know, we need to be careful with that. If he opens the door, go through it and just go straight, keep walking straight ahead and just trust him that he will take care of you. He will take care of everything else.
You may not understand it. You may not get it. But he will take care of it. You just have to trust him. So again, in a sense, be like those cows and just keep going. Don't stop. Keep heading towards that destination. It it then says in verse 13 that as the cows approached, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. They were working. They were just minding their own everyday, you know, doing everyday tasks. And when they looked up, they saw the ark. And they were overjoyed to see it. And so they took the cart and used it to make a fire. And both those cows were offered as burnt offerings to the Lord. And both the ark and the gold objects were placed placed on a large rock. Israel had finally gotten their beloved ark back. And now it was time to celebrate. Now, in all the excitement, in all the partying and everything, the celebration and joy that was going on, verse 19 says that the men of Beth Shemesh disrespected the ark of the Lord by opening it up and looking inside. You see, according to Numbers chapter 4, only the Levites could handle, touch, much less even look inside the ark. And so because of this deliberate, careless act, this careless disregard of the Lord, he struck down 70 persons. Now, it may not seem much, but 70 people can be a lot. It could be considered a great slaughter for a small town. Now, the significance of this story is that Israel was not to take God's grace for granted. It was because of grace that he was present with the nation through the Holy Ark. And they needed to treat the Ark as holy. But unfortunately, the the men of Beth Shemesh didn't treat the Lord as holy. And as a result, they were severely disciplined for it. And after this, the Ark was moved again to Kiriath-Jerim. Now, we don't know why they picked this village. Whatever the reason, though, the men of Kiriath-Jerim received the ark, and it stayed there for many years until King David brought it to the city of Jerusalem. This last part of this chapter here, is a message that is greatly needed in our world today, in the world that we live in today. You see, it illustrates that the Philistine worldview, which is similar in many ways to today's postmodern New Age perspective, that it's inadequate. God does not coexist with the forces of nature, nor is he created in our image He is not susceptible to the forces of magic or idolatry. He cannot be manipulated or pressed into service whenever we feel threatened or at risk. The God of Israel is in fact imminent and in control. He is victorious over all the forces of the world, just as he was victorious over the Philistine god Dagon. So the return of the ark seemed to be a tangible sign that God was once again among his people. 
to bless them and deliver them from their oppressors. However, as we're about to read in chapter 7 now, the mere presence of the ark did not guarantee God's favor. Rather, it was a submission to the God of the ark that was essential. That was that was what was important. The submission to the God of the ark. So now let's turn again to chapter to 1 Samuel and read chapter 7. So the people of Kirith dream, um, uh, that, actually I'm going to begin in verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 2. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kirith dream. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Dedicate yourself to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the, ba- the Baals and the asterisks and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, gather all Israel and Mitzvah, Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it on the Lord's poured it in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, "We have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mitzpah. Then the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mitzpah. Their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, so that he will save us from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below Bethkar. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mitzpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Israel's life. The cities from Ekron to Gath, which, had, which, had, uh, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel was even rescued from their surrounding territory, territories from Philistine control. There, they also, there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and he would judge Israel at these locations. Then he returned to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there, and he built an altar to the Lord there. For two decades, 20 years, 20 long years, the Ark of God remained at Kirith Jerim. Now, perhaps the reason for this was because it wasn't being housed in the tabernacle. But another reason might be because 
of the consequences of the people's bad choices in worshiping idols. So around that time, the whole house of Israel mourned. They started to feel convicted. And that conviction got so strong that he mourned and longed for the Lord. And it's at this point that we see Samuel re-entering the picture. It seems that because the mood and the heart of the people had now drastically changed, Samuel recognized this as the moment when he could call for repentance and recommitment. So in verse 3, Samuel told the people that they were really sincere about returning to the Lord with all their hearts, then they must prove, then they must prove their loyalty to him by getting rid of the foreign gods and set their hearts to worship him only. If they did that, he assured them that God would rescue them from their Philistine oppressors. He wasn't suggesting, maybe he will. He was saying that he told them that he would, that God would rescue them. Well, in verse 4, they did exactly just that. Idols were removed, and they worshipped the Lord, and they only worshipped the Lord. Afterwards, Samuel summoned the entire nation to Mitzpah for a prayer meeting. And there, in that prayer meeting, they fasted and confessed their fundamental problem. We have sinned against the Lord. As a sign for of their repentance, they drew water. They drew water pour, and poured it on the Lord in the Lord's presence. Furthermore, there at Mitzpah, Samuel took on the official role of judge. The difference, though, between him now and all previous judges before him was that now that role took on a prophetic and priestly significance. It didn't have this significance before. The story then continues to inform us that upon hearing that the Israelites had gathered at Mitzvah, the Philistines were like, all right, this is our chance. They knew that this was a great time for them to attack. And so they did. The Hebrews, the Jewish nation, the Israelites, unprepared for war, were terrified and pleaded with Samuel to intercede for them. And verse 9 tells them that he did when he took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he continued to pray. And as a result, subsequently, God routed the enemy miraculously when he thundered loudly, loudly against the Philistines, throwing them into confusion. And it was they were so confused that they were defeated. In gratitude, Samuel took a stone and set it upright to a monument, as a monument, and named it Ebenezer, which means stone of help in Hebrew. Verses 13 and 14 inform us that three things resulted in this victory. First, the Philistines were subdued. Second, the Philistines didn't invade Israel's territory again for a period of time. And in fact, Israel was able to recover land 
back some of the land that had been taken from them. Third, the Lord's hand was against the Philistines for the entirety of Samuel's life. And fourth of all, Israel enjoyed peace with the Amorites for a while. The last two verses of chapter 7 simply state that Samuel used his hometown, Ramah, as a base after returning from his yearly circuit of judging Israel in, in three principal cities. But when he was in Ramah, he would still serve as judge. And he even built an altar to the Lord there. Now, we're not told why he didn't return the Lord's altar nor, or why he didn't return to the Lord's altar, why he allowed the ark to remain in Abinadab's house. But if we consider everything that had already taken place, everything that we just read about, everything that had happened so far, the days of doing things a certain way, a way that they were all used to doing, they were, those days were all long gone. And so now they had to learn how to adapt and improvise. I think this was something that God understood and could explain why he allowed many things to be practiced that were outside his original design. So as you look at this chapter from a broader perspective, you'll see that it's a great study in revival. First, we see that when all Israel was spiritually empty and broken, God raised up a man, Samuel, who called the people to repentance, confession, and cleansing. This was essentially the condition of Israel when Jesus began his earthly ministry. And as he preached the gospel, he was calling people to do the same. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In short, his message, the message he preached, was for people to repent of their sins, confess him as the Messiah, and to be cleansed from their sin. The simplicity of this message from the Son of God himself led to revival. So if revival is what the church truly desires, then she needs people like Samuel. She needs men and women like Samuel that will have the courage to speak up during really difficult times, during really hard times where the people are looking for answers, where people are also broken, lost, confused, hurting, and they need to call people to repentance, confession, and cleansing. I truly, live, I truly think that we live in a time when people are longing for the Lord. And as Christians, we have been commanded by Jesus himself to share the gospel. 
He said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The next thing this chapter shows us about revival is that, that about revival was that it, um, that intercession was made through the blood of a lamb. It says in verse 9 that Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He took an innocent lamb and sacrificed it to God for the sins of the people. Does this sound familiar to you? Well, on the cross, Jesus was the innocent lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the world so that we may be made righteous in the eyes of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. True revival, therefore, will occur when people begin to see and understand what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 14. After offering one sacrifice for sins forever, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. By one offering, he was perfected forever. He perfected forever those who were sanctified. Now the third thing this chapter shows us about revival is that after Samuel's call for repentance and after intercession was made, what we see, there was victory. Verse 10 again says that the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Notice that although Israel's military defeated the Philistines, the credit actually belongs to God because of what he did. God deserves all the credit, he deserves all the honor, and he deserves all the glory. It was him that caused this confusion among the Philistines. So likewise, God made us victorious through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our battle over sin and death was finally over. And because of him, we've won. Our Lord said this in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. But let me also make this important point. Many times, great revivals began after a nation or a church experienced victory against a formidable enemy. As people recognized that God was with them in this victory, a spirit-filled joy was ignited. J.I. Packer said this, a revived church is full of the life, joy, and power of the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit's coming, fellowship with Christ is brought right to the center of our worship and devotion. The glorified Christ is shown, known, loved, served, and exalted. 
love and generosity, unity and joy, assurance and boldness, a spirit of praise and prayer and passion to reach out to win others are occurring, are recurring marks of a people experiencing revival. Just like any container can only hold so much water before he begins to spill over, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. You see, when the Holy Spirit begins to move, no church walls or any nation's borders will be able to contain the overwhelming flood that God's Spirit is pouring out. Everyone will begin to experience the overwhelming power of God. It can't be stopped. So let me also mention this, this last thing here. When you're faced with difficulties, when you're faced with the challenges of life and they seem overwhelming, remember, you have the victory. When you find yourself in spiritual battle against an unseen enemy, a formidable enemy, never forget that Satan has no authority over the believer in Christ. God has given us his word to guide us, his spirit to enable us, and the privilege of coming to him anywhere any time to pray about anything. It says in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning that you've given us. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for your word here, Lord. I pray that everyone, again, was able to see your overwhelming power, Lord. May we always see you as holy. When we think of you, may we always uh, keep in mind that you hold our lives in the palm of your hands, that the only reason our heart beats is because of you. The only reason we're breathing is because of you. The only reason the atoms of this world, this planet, are, be are being held together is because of you. We can't even begin to fathom how great and how awesome you are, Lord. And the more we try to, Lord, the more it just makes us want to fall on our, on our knees and on our face and worship you. And so we thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, for making us your children. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.